morning. Scripture reading this morning will be from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him daily only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Well, I'm very happy to be with you today, and I'm very grateful for the presence of everyone. If you're visiting with us, we're always very happy to have you and very grateful for your presence and encourage you to stay so that we can become better acquainted and and become friends. And to let you know that uh, we're concerned about you and your spiritual condition, and we uh, love you and want the best for you. And please give us opportunity to come to grow to be friends so that we can help each other go to heaven, that uh, place that we all desire to be. So I'm very happy that I can be with you on such a beautiful Lord's Day, such beautiful singing. Thank you, Jonathan, for leading us in such a fashion and for you participating in that way, for the wonderful prayers, for the the men that have uh, led us in our worship and observing the Supper of the Lord. We're very grateful for each and every one. And the scripture reading as well, thank you for that. And you see that it comes from Matthew chapter 4. You and I have been studying about growing spiritually and what it means. We've talked a lot about different aspects of growing spiritually. But I think a a lesson on growing spiritually would certainly have to include a discussion about one of the great things that we face every day, and that's temptation. And so I want to devote myself to that kind of discussion this morning. And as always, I want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? Because that's what I want to know. I want to know what the Word of God has to say about the matter. I saw a film several years ago on George, uh, on General Patton. George C. Scott was the movie star that was playing his life, and there were some rough things involved in the movie, and I'm sure that was a rough life that Patton had lived. And part of that film sticks out in my mind just by means of introduction and illustration. And that is that uh, Patton and his army is fighting against uh, the German Field Marshal Rommel, and he's, he's had the day against Rommel. And he sort of puts his hands on his hips and he smiles and he says, Rommel, I read your book. In other words, what he was saying in the movie was, understand your enemy. Now understand where he's coming from. Understand what his goals and objectives are. Understand his approaches. And I think that's what we see in Matthew chapter 4, 
Jesus understands his enemy, and we should too. In any lesson that does express itself in the matter of spiritual growth, that we should spend a lot of time talking about the enemy and understanding him as best we possibly can. That's why I thought of Matthew chapter 4. You know, the whole region of Palestine is abuzz over the preaching of John. It's about 26 A.D. There, John, multitudes are coming to his preaching, and he's baptizing them in the River Jordan. Multitudes are coming. One passage talks about John preaching and baptizing near Salim, Enon near Salim, because there was much water there. So many people were coming. He was a very popular preacher coming out of the Judean desert. And there, all the action stops. When Jesus, who comes from Galilee in the north, through Samaria to John in the south to be baptized of John. And John said, no, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, for thus it fulfills ourselves to fulfill all righteousness. And what he was saying there in Matthew chapter 3 was, I'm here to obey the divine will of God. Baptize me like you're baptizing everyone else. Every time I talk about the baptism of Jesus, I always feel the need to explain that Jesus was not baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus came forward, going that long journey to be baptized of John, to fulfill all righteousness, to do the will of God, because the baptism of John was from heaven, and it was not from men. I was baptized for the remission of my sins, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I knew and know that I was guilty of sin at the time, and I repented of that, and I had made a determined effort. I'm not going to live my life for sin. I'm going to live my life for Christ. And I was immersed in water for the remission of my sins. The word remission means forgiveness. I was baptized and thus received the benefit of the blood of Christ and received forgiveness of sin. I confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I've been doing it every day since. I've never had any reason to doubt otherwise or to say otherwise. And I say it today just as strongly or stronger than ever before, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The little excursion that I'm making here simply is to help us understand that the baptism of Jesus was different from the baptism of Jim, or your baptism, or your baptism. You were baptized for the remission of sins, but Jesus was not guilty of sin and yet was baptized as a means of obedience to the divine will of God. The Bible says he was filled with the Spirit, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, and the Spirit compelled him to go into the wilderness. The Judean wilderness is something to behold. The Judean wilderness down south in the Negev desert, somewhere in that wilderness, Jesus is tempted 40 days of the devil. He fasts 40 days, 40 nights does not eat, and yet he faces severe temptation. But he understands who the enemy is, and anyone who wants to grow spiritually must do the same thing. There's a lot that we can learn from the battle that takes place in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Mark chapter 1. Mark gives us some particular insight into the matter that Jesus was there with the wild animals. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights without eating. Now somebody says, well, how can that be done? Well, it's been done before. It was done with regard to Elijah, also Elisha. Others had fasted 40 days or longer, were able to do it. 
It's not an easy thing to do, but Jesus is focusing and giving his full attention and his full understanding to the divine will of God the Father. And yet Satan is doing the very best he can to tempt him. Now, it's not a question of whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. That's not the issue in Matthew chapter 4. God's already said in Matthew chapter 3, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God descended as a dove, and a voice from heaven making that statement. So they knew, Satan knows, this is the Son of God. The question in Matthew chapter 4 is what kind of Messiah is he going to be? Is he going to be a self-serving type of Messiah, one that's concerned about himself? Is he going to be the kind of Messiah that just pleases the masses? Well, let's see how Jesus did. To help me understand something of this matter of the temptation of Jesus and the temptations that I go through and you go through, I want to turn to a Bible passage that I think helps me see the pattern in which we see uh, the matter go. It's found for us in 1 John chapter 2, and the passage is about verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, verse 17 says, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Well, I've read for you today 1 John chapter 2 and the verses of verses 15, 16, and 17. And I think we see insight into matter of temptation, which is what I want to learn about today. There is the temptation which comes from the lust of the flesh, that which comes from the lust of the eye, and that which comes from the pride of life. And as I look at Matthew chapter 4, I see Satan tempting in that very direction. Now, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. One thing we need to understand that these were real and genuine temptations. It is an incitement to commit wrong. In James chapter 1 and verse 4, you have a Bible passage there that describes the fact that I am free in this matter to choose between right and wrong, and that God's going to hold me responsible for the decision that I make. He says in James chapter 4 and verse 4, James chapter 1 and verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are enticements for me which I desire for myself. The temptations which we read in the book of Matthew with regard to Jesus are real and genuine temptation. After all, Jesus, Paul says, the second Adam. The first Adam faced temptation and failed. What will the second Adam do? But the point that we need to remember is that the second Adam was just as capable of yielding to the temptation and committing sin as the first Adam. But thanks be to God that the second Adam refused the sin and rejected the temptation. There is no sin in the matter of being tempted. But there certainly is sin in the matter of accepting and embracing and yielding to the temptation. And the point that Jesus is going through in Matthew chapter 4 is that Jesus resisted each one of these temptations successfully. However, Adam failed in the matter, and you and I fail much too often. 
There's another point of uh, interest that we ought to consider before I delve into this particular passage and look at points of application. One thing is that Jesus used Scripture over and over again. Somebody's going to say, well, naturally, he's the Son of God. He, he's not going to yield to temptation. Well, he's just as capable, as we've learned, of committing sin as you and I were capable and are capable of committing sin. Only Jesus never committed any sin. He resisted the temptation. And that's the lesson for us. Well, he's the Son of God. He's got the power to do it. It wouldn't be much of a lesson for me if Jesus, by his own divine power, resists the temptation. But how Jesus resisted each temptation was by appealing to the Word of God. And over and over again, he gained strength from the Word of God and resists the temptation in each and every situation that, that, we, uh, that we see. And actually, I can do the same thing if I'll just do it. And in James chapter 4 and verse 7, I will be able to say to the devil to flee, and I can resist him, and he'll have to flee. James chapter 4, verse 7. Look it up in the pages of your Bible. It's a Bible passage which says you can resist the temptation which is faced before you. I'm talking about growing spiritually. I'm talking about trying to be a more dedicated, more faithful child of God. The kind of person that God wants me to be. And one of the great battlefields that I face on a daily basis is the battlefield of temptation. How can I overcome that? It helps to know your enemy. And that's what I learned in Matthew chapter 4. I want to talk a little more about this passage before I actually get into points of application, which I found several. One thing that I want to talk about is the fact that he comes to Jesus and he says, Now turn these stones into bread. That's verse 3. He had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. You know, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Here, this Moses, this liberator from sin, is one who fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he says, now turn these stones into bread. Well, what would be wrong with that? Go ahead and turn the stones into bread. But it would cause Jesus to be a self-serving kind of Messiah. You know, if I face problems and difficulties of life, I just perform a miracle, what's the problem? I can just get out of it by performing a miracle. But I can't do that. I can't perform a miracle. No one can today. So naturally, Jesus does not succumb to the lust of the flesh. He knows more that there's more to life than simply bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, he quotes that Old Testament passage. Moses was telling the children of Israel, do not rely upon yourself. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You trust God. Put your confidence in God. He'll help you. He'll see you through. And Jesus used that Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 8 and 3, to help him overcome temptation. And I can use that passage as well. Now, he takes him to this great uh, pinnacle of the temple. And we're not sure exactly. This is the second temptation. We're not sure exactly what he's referring to here. Evidently, looking over the Kidron Valley to the south, the highmost, foremost point of the temple, you could fall into that precipice below, and Satan, in a very cunning and clever way, quotes Psalm 91. He says, Now he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, 
and they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Cast yourself off. Don't worry about it. God's going to protect you. And God is not going to allow anything to happen to you. I suppose it would be a matter of the pride of life, as John outlined it for us, 1 John chapter 2. You know, I am the Son of God. I could cast myself off. God's not going to let me uh, hurt myself or let anything happen to me. And yet Jesus quoted Old Testament Scripture again, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I'm not going to put him to the test. I'm not going to force his hand on this. I'm simply going to follow him and his word. And then if I may quickly talk about the pride of life as another element of temptation and understanding what Jesus went through. He says, now, he took him to a, a mountaintop. I don't know where that mountaintop was. Maybe some special mountaintop. Maybe by means of that mountaintop, he saw all the nations of the earth. Wouldn't that be something? The Assyrian nation. The Roman world. The Egyptian nation with all of its great wisdom and power and might. The uh, Babylonian nation. As great a nation as Babylon was. He sees all the nations of the earth. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain. Wish I knew where the mountain was. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's verse 8. That would have been a sight to see. Some special way in which Satan tempts Jesus and says, now look at all these nations. I'll give it all to you. Now some have doubted that Satan had the power to do that, but I have a rather idea that he had the ability to do that. They had given themselves over to Satan. That is certainly within his power and purview to do such. Satan is limited, of course, in what he can and cannot do. But I suppose that he could do this. And I suppose that it was a temptation for Jesus, the lust of the eyes, to see all that the kingdoms and the glory of these nations. And he said to him, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Now that if clause tells me that it's a subjunctive statement, that verb. It is an aorist subjunctive. I'm reading and studying out of verse 9. And in an air subjunctive, he says, if it is the case that you will do this, then I'll give all of the nations and the glory of all the nations to you. But the aorist part of that verb is saying, all you have to do is do it one time. Aorist. If you'll bow down and worship me once, I'll give you all the nations of the earth and the glory of them. And what a temptation that must have been. Jesus said, no. No. Get thee behind me, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only will you serve. And as we read a moment ago, the devil left him. And that's exactly what the devil has to do. James is saying in James 4, 7, he will flee from you. The Bible makes clear, though, that even though the devil left him, he's not done. He's going to come back again and again. The great thing about this temptation and helping me grow spiritually is the fact that I can resist the devil, too, by using the Word of God, 
The power that's inherent in the truths of God's Word are available to me as I study them and I utilize them as I should properly. But he's coming back. And about the time I think that I've got this all done, here he comes again. What shall I learn from it? This is one of the tools of the devil. Doubt God. Doubt him. You're going to see this come up over and over again in your Christian walk of life. There's going to be times and difficulties and problems in life where you will be called upon to doubt God. And what I mean by that is you're going to be called upon to doubt God and doubt God's Word. And this is one of the great tools of Satan. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and in the third chapter of this great book of the Bible, a book of beginnings. He does his very best to cause doubt into the heart and the mind of Adam and Eve, the first Adam. Doubt what God says. Doubt what God will do. Why, grow more and more within yourself, have confidence more and more about what you can do, and grow in less and less confidence with regard to what God can do. Let's doubt God. Let's doubt God's Word. And as we kind of work our way through Genesis chapter 3, we see that this serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Satan was working, a real being, Satan, working through this created being, the serpent. And he comes and he entices Eve. And I just wonder, where was Adam when all of this discussion was going on? And I suspect that Adam was standing right there next to her. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. You surely will not die. He's a liar. Jesus said he was a liar from the very beginning. He's putting doubt in the heart and in the mind of this particular woman. The first human pair, Adam and Eve, face temptation. And the first temptation that is leveled toward them, that they succumb to and yield to, is doubt. We doubt God. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Verse 4. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. He was standing right beside her. And as her husband, he should have told her, no, we will not do this. But he didn't. He yielded to the temptation, making him just as guilty as she was. They ate of forbidden fruit, and Satan manages to work sin into the world. Whereas prior to this, before this, it was not there, but now it is. And it came about because of doubt. I want you to doubt what God will do. I want you to doubt what God says. That's one of the great practical points that we need to learn with regard to resisting temptation 
and the sin that follows it when we obey it. Luke chapter 8 and verse 12, Luke's version of the sower. A sower went forth to sow, and as you remember in that particular passage, I always love to study Matthew 13 on this, but in Luke chapter 8 and 13, verse 12, really, he says, now Satan comes along and he takes the word out of the heart of people. His point that he's making there is some seed falls by the wayside. Matthew says, the fowl of the air come and devour it up. His point was the Word of God goes from one heart to another heart. This particular heart, this wayside soil heart, accepts the Word of God, sees the Word of God, but doesn't really get anywhere or do anything because Satan comes and he takes the Word right out of that person's heart. And how does he do that? He does that because of one doubting God. And that's how temptation comes along. It helps to know your enemy and your enemy has a strategy, and he's a powerful enemy, and the strategy that he's going to use on you and on me, as he did in Jesus with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, is to create doubt in our minds about what God has said. If you don't believe that, just think about it for a little while. How many times somebody said, yeah, I know I know that's what the Word of God says, but however they say it, it comes out something like, God's going to make an exception for me. You know why? Because God loves me. And God loves me so much, He doesn't want me to be lost. And that part's true. But then they go on and say, therefore, I do not have to whatever. Be baptized into Christ. Repent of the sins which I have engulfed, engulfed myself in. I don't have to because God loves me. And God wants the good thing to happen to me. Doubt. Or it might come out this way. I really don't have to repent of that. I know it's not exactly the right thing to do. But I've been doing this so long. I really don't have to repent. Or it might come out this way. I'm going to put it so far back in my mind that I'm just going to forget about it. And it is a sin which I have been engaged in. I know it's on the wrong side of the ledger, as we might say. It's the kind of sin whereby the Bible condemns it. Preachers talk about it and, and condemn it, that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm really, I just don't see the need to repent of it, even though God's told me to. And so I'm just not going to. I'll put it out of my mind. It is doubt that creeps into our heart and our mind about the Word of God. And we allow that doubt to be a means of temptation leading us to sin. Or here's one. Here's one. You know, I just don't see it that way. Well, the Bible tells me very carefully and clearly that I must be a part of the New Testament church. That there's a church written about in the pages of the New Testament. For all penitent, baptized believers are added to the church by the Lord. Acts chapter 2. Well, I just don't see it. I see it differently. Well, how do you see it? And based on what? Well, I, I just see it differently. I, I don't see it that way at all. I, I have a different approach to this. I have a, a different way of seeing this particular matter. Doubt. However it comes up, however it manifests itself, it can cause us to sin. It is a temptation. It helps to know the enemy. If I'm going to grow spiritually, 
I need to know how he's going to work in my life and how he's going to work on my soul. And one of the things that he's going to do is create doubt about God in my life. As you grow older and as you study more and more, we become stronger in faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And we hear more and more and we study more and more. And as we do, the doubt becomes less and less. But in the beginning, there's probably a lot of doubts in your mind and in your heart. And it's not a sin, but it's a sin to trade God's Word for the doubt and to follow the doubt rather than the Word of God. Don't do it. Have confidence in God. Confidence in God's Word. And I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Every time, I think of this every time I take the Lord's Supper. God promised us His Son, and I took that bread, and through the generations and the centuries, I am saying, Lord, Your promise was fulfilled. And I take that cup, and I know that Jesus told me to do so, Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 28. But the point is, how can you doubt God when all these particular matters have come about? If God makes a promise, if God says it's so, it's so, and that promise is going to happen in God's great time and in God's great way. Don't doubt God. Grow stronger spiritually and understand your enemy. Now, I want to spend just a, a moment of time because I think this is part of our big problem. We trust ourselves. And that's what Satan wants to do. You know why? You're a smart person. Why, you've been to school. You're a smart person. You've been to school. You've taken these um, courses and you've matriculated through the curriculum to the point you're a pretty smart guy. And Satan wants you to believe that. Satan wants you to take the talents and the abilities, the time that God gives you, and use it for yourself. Uh, use these talents God's given for yourself. Because you're a very smart person. And Satan wants you to decrease God in your life and increase our view of ourself in our life. And he wants us to really build ourselves up so much so that we think, hey, I can handle all this. That is nothing but the humanistic type of approach to life. Give me enough time, enough money, and enough resources. I'll handle all the problems on my own. I don't need God because I have this trusting in myself type of attitude. Somebody will write about this, and all i got to do is go to the Internet and find the answer to it. Well, the Bible's the answer to it. Rather than trusting in myself so much, this is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, our text today. He's led up of the Spirit. It's an interesting concept. Now, I kind of rushed by that. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. Somewhere in the south, the Negev, you have this desert, this wilderness area. And Jesus is tempted of the devil. And he's tempted to turn these stones into bread. But Jesus said, no, he will not turn these stones into bread. That would be pleasing himself. 
Or after all, isn't there some kind of compensation for being the Son of God? Shouldn't you get something out of it? Isn't there some kind of compensation? That's the way we think about it, you know. Isn't there some kind of compensation for being God's only begotten Son? Shouldn't you get something out of this? Turn these stones into bread. you got the power to do it. Jesus said, no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Children of Israel looked across the Jordan. You know what they saw? The promised land. Moses, by the power of God, led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Been there for hundreds of years. Now they come to the promised land, and there it's before them. They send out the spies, and what did the spies come back and say? Why, the cities there are walled and high. Why, the Anakim, the giants, they live there. Well, we are but grasshoppers in their sight. And you know why they said that? Because they were trusting in themselves. And if it were just up to them, they would have never been able to conquer the land of Palestine, the land flowing with milk and honey. But with God's help, they could do it. And they did it, not because of them trusting in themselves, but because of trusting in God. Isaiah's main message, 66 chapters, Put your trust in God. Don't put your trust in Assyria. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in Babylon. Put your trust in God. One of the great temptations that the enemy of our soul places before us is the temptation, put your trust in yourself because you can do it and you don't need anyone else to help you. Matthew chapter 16, well into the third year of Jesus' ministry. Time is growing short. There in the town north of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples who the son, of, who people say that the Son of Man is, and they had their various answers with regard to that. And then he goes on and he asked Peter, he said, but who do you say that I am? Or he asked the twelve that. And Peter responds, speaking up for the twelve, and he gives a wonderful answer here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this wonderful discussion about the church and, and what all of that particular means begins to ensue. And then Jesus goes and makes this statement in 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside. Now the one who just made this wonderful statement. And began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now he's telling him and telling all them. He's saying, now I've, I'm trying to explain to you. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going there to suffer many things by the hands of the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're going to put me to death. He's talking about his resurrection. He's talking about his sacrifice. And Peter pulls him aside. He says, no, wait a minute, Lord. It's not going to happen that way. It's not going to happen that way. But he turned and said to Peter, verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And his point there in verse 23 is you're trusting in yourself. You're not seeing this God's way. You're trying to see it your way. You're trying to make it happen your way. Rather than trusting in God, you're trusting in yourself. And Peter's saying, no, wait a minute, it's not going to happen that way. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking like Satan. Get behind me, Satan, because you're acting like Satan. 
Get behind me, Satan, because this is the teaching of Satan. The teaching of God is that I will go to Jerusalem and suffer many things by the hands of Pharisees and Sadducees. Peter was guilty of trusting in himself and trusting in themselves. And Jesus said, it's not going to work that way. That's not the way it's going to be. But how many times have we done that very same thing? Trust in ourselves rather than trust in God. I want to talk more about this, Lord willing, I'll talk about it tonight. And I hope that you'll be with me tonight, 6 o'clock, so that you and I can study together our enemy and coming to a better understanding of him, grow spiritually. I've already explained something about what it means to become a Christian, to repent of sin and confess faith in Christ, be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. I know I say that a lot because that's the way Peter said it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized to every one of you for the remission. Remission means the release of or the forgiveness of sin and what a wonderful thing that is and that can be yours if you're obedient to the will of God. Out of obedient faith you come to Him and confess your faith in Christ. Now the Christian who's unfaithful, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, needs to confess his fault before God. The non-Christian confesses his faith in Christ and becomes a child of God by being baptized into Christ. The unfaithful Christian needs to repent of his sin and confess his fault, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. And that may be needed today, whatever the need. I pray you'll come. While together we stand and while we sing.